are talking about the Minor Prophets. We're discussing the Minor Prophets, and we're looking at uh, these 12 small books. That's why they're called Minor in the Old Testament. And we're taking one Minor Prophet a week, and we're kind of studying the book as a whole, and then we're walking through a particular passage. Um, because the, We're doing this because the Minor Prophets are life-challenging, and they're also graphic. Uh, that's why we're calling the study the postcards from the edge. Postcards from the edge. Uh, so here's my yes. These books are out there sometimes and sometimes very confrontational uh, and uncomfortable to read. Uh, but also at the same time, they're thoughtful and well-timed words that God has placed for us and speaks to us. So I hope that we'll take both of those things in hand as we look at the, uh, Zechariah today. But before we get to Zechariah, I'd just like to kind of talk about the the territory we've covered. Um, So, look, people, we started with Amos. Do you remember that? Way back when, maybe some of you. Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Joel, and Haggai. And this week we're talking about the book of Zechariah. Um, Let me give you some historical background on Zechariah for a minute. Um, He spoke and lived at almost the exact same time as Haggai, who we studied last week, which means that Zechariah spoke his prophecies around 520 B.C. Remember the historical build-up to 520 B.C. I mean, guys, you should, like, ancient Israel history is, like, your thing now, isn't it? Every week we go through this. uh, 586 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, okay? Um, just one of these days someone's going to shout something out and I'll just, like, jump up and down. Um, anyway, so 586 B.C. is when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple of God, the physical address of God on earth, and takes all of the Jews into Babylon, into exile. That happens for roughly 70 years, and then about 539 B.C., the Persians, uh, under Cyrus, the emperor, take over Babylon, and then Cyrus a year later, 538 B.C., uh, lets go of the Jews and sends them back to their land. But instead of hundreds of thousands, there's only 50,000 that go back to Jerusalem in about 538 B.C. Um, I know I don't know if you guys were there at Grace Covenant, but they had a really awesome PowerPoint for the timeline. It looked like space, future. I wish that we had that. But So those are some dates that we should know. Okay, like Haggai, Zechariah is speaking prophecies to a small, poor group. Think, don't think America, think third world developing nation with, who are just absolutely overwhelmed. They're feeling hopeless, they're feeling weak, they're feeling poor, they're feeling small in number, and they're feeling their sin royally. Why? Because they've just been put in the equivalent of exile for their sins for 70 years. They're fresh off of that adventure and the consequences of that. So that's the historical background of the book of Zechariah. Let's talk a little bit about what the actual book is about for a second. Um, So again, we're going to cruise through the themes here. Here's what we've covered this semester. This is what the minor prophets have majored in. Injustice, grace, redemption, the kingdom of God, God as warrior king, God's joy, faith, humility, repentance, and God's glory. And Zechariah's main theme, the main thing that he's talking about through, all, throughout his chapters, the 14 chapters he has, is atonement. What a fancy word to throw out there, Druin. Atonement. Okay? What does atonement mean? 
Um, I, before I define it for you, I want to I suggest that Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, this passage we're going to look at, and maybe the book of Zechariah as a whole, is one of the best places to get a picture of what atonement looks like. Okay? And not just that, but atonement is perhaps the most important idea of the Bible and Christianity. So if you want to summarize what all of we're doing, what all of this is about, what this whole semester has been about, what I think life itself is about, one word, atonement. Okay? Atonement is that theological word that refers to a relationship that's restored with God by Jesus Christ. Okay? It, refer, it refers to reconciliation and ultimately acceptance. And think about it. Atonement means that through Jesus we can be one with God. Just slow down the word a little bit for yourselves. At one minute. At one minute. Okay? So that's what atonement means. Some of you got that in Sunday school or youth group. Welcome back. Okay. So <clears throat> tonight we're going to study a key passage of Zechariah. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. We're going to get an up-close and personal view at atonement at work why we need it, how we get it, and what it means for us. So why we need it, how we get it, and what it means for us. That's what we're going to look at today. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 10. If you have a blue sheet, it's on the inner right of that. And would you stand for the reading of Scripture? If you're brave enough to be thumbing through a Bible, just find the book of Psalms and take a right. If you hit the New Testament, you've gone too far. And it's two books from uh, Matthew. So Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. Okay, chapter 3 is what we're looking at. Reading out the English Standard Version translation. Then he showed me, that's Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's a fancy word for clothes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone, that's the branch still, again, it's a dream vision, we'll talk about that in a minute, that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone, seven eyes, or seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Friends, these are the words of God. And they're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey from a honeycomb. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would um, send your spirit to show up and to help here. Um, some of us are tired, some of us are bored already. Some of us are um, eager to hear what you have to say from us. And I, may, I pray that you would 
increase all of our attentiveness to your word, to what you'd have us say. Uh, I pray just frankly right now that you'd help me to get over myself um, and that you'd help me to, to just try to display this passage. Um, even reading it um, feels like enough. What a beautiful passage of scripture. What a beautiful truth that you're trying to tell us. And I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. And that you, O oh Father, you, O oh Son, you, O oh Spirit, would be glorified. Would be high and exalted and lifted up in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. Because you alone do things like atonement. You alone accept the unacceptable. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives as if that were true. Even starting now by believing that these are your words given to us. We ask these, these please, we ask these uh, beggings in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> When I was in graduate school, uh, I went to a thing called seminary, which trains future ministers. When I was there, I met a friend. I know. Um, and we... <laughs> so amazing. Uh, and we started to hang out. We used to talk, and we used to pray weekly. Um, like a lot of people in seminary, again, it's a graduate school that trains pastors. Um, my friend was a pastor's kid. He was a son of a senior pastor in church. Um, he, his dad was a senior pastor of a small church in West Virginia. And this church was part of something called the Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement. Some of you are aware of this. Uh, um, but basically, this kind of theology believes that if you pray a prayer, uh, that the Holy Spirit will come into you and make you perfect in this life. You will no longer sin. That is, you love everyone perfectly. You'll never be selfish in this life. This is why folks stand up and say things like, I haven't sinned in seven years. Okay. Now, for the record, I don't believe this is true. Um, I think the Bible teaches that you, we all do have sin, even if we're Christian. And I would point you to, to passages if you want to write these down. Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. So Romans 7, 14 through 25. Philippians 3, 12. And 1 John 1, 8 through 10. I think those are very clear passages where it talks about believers, including Paul. Still sinning. Okay, but nonetheless, do your own homework, that's fine. The whole point of this is to say that this false belief that Christians can be perfect in this life was so hard on my friend's dad. Deep down inside, he knew that he wasn't perfectly loving, and he wasn't full of self-control. But he could only show perfection to the outside. He could only show perfection to his family and to his church. To make matters worse, my friend's dad was a secret alcoholic. I'm not sure which came first. I'm not sure if the feeling of hypocrisy led him to drink, or if drinking led to a feeling of hypocrisy. But I do know that each of them fueled each other pretty royally. And so you can imagine the outbursts of defensiveness and excuses, angry excuses, that my friend's father used to give his mother when she discovered him drunk in the kitchen pantry. One day, I got a call from my friend, I think I was fixing my car. Well, by me fixing my car, it was I took it somewhere. And they found him alone, okay? They found my friend's dad alone in the mountains just outside where he's from in West Virginia, near a family cabin. And my friend's dad was found dead in his truck. The circumstances aren't clear, but he had been drinking, and the police think he tried to commit suicide. 
by inhaling carbon monoxide. Basically took a, a rubber garden hose and put it in his tailpipe and, and, and threaded it through his windows, rolled up his windows, hit the ignition, and, and sucked in the carbon monoxide. And we're not sure, still not sure, whether or not it was the carbon monoxide or the alcohol or a desperate final sense of life that made him hit the accelerator and crash into a tree. And that's how he died. Look, uh, I'm still not sure if that's the greatest story to share, um, especially with my theological tangent at the beginning, but I think that it gets at something essential about life and Christianity. It's a true story. Every time I talk to students about why they don't want to go to church, why they don't like the church, I hear the point about hypocrisy. Okay? People say that life's about life with Jesus is about being nice and acting good. But then they go to church and they see that people aren't so nice and they don't act very good. Right? But if you're honest and if I'm honest and the people in church are honest... We would all confess that we're hypocrites in need of rescue, that the church is a hospital for sick, sin-sick people, not a museum to show off our virtue. Okay? In other words, all of us at some level feel like my friend's dad. There's this disconnect between how we appear to the world and how we know we are. None of us is as interesting as our Facebook profiles. None of us. Okay? Every one of us is afraid of being found out as a fake. We're actually boring. We're actually not as good as other people think, especially our parents. While some of us feeling of inadequacy is false self-esteem, false low self-esteem, okay? some of this, a lot of it is true. A lot of what we feel is true. We're projecting something that's not who we are to the world around us. It's a false self that we think we should be. It's a false self that we think is only acceptable. Most of us are living in this reality. And this deep feeling of inadequacy, this deep feeling of hypocrisy is exactly how the ancient Israelites felt in this passage. Around 520 BC, God's people, the ancient church, were struggling to go through the religious motions. Just like maybe we are right now. The ancient Israelites were sin-scarred people who were trying to make holy sacrifices to a perfect God. And it all felt so fake, and it all felt so hopeless. If a God of such perfection and of such holiness exists, how could he begin to accept people who just got out of prison in Babylon, who had nothing special to offer? They were weak, they were poor, they were small in number. But this passage offers ancient Israel and offers us such an incredible hope. We don't have to drink alone in secret. We don't have to give up on life and God. And let me tell you this, this hope does not look like a false piety. It does not look like pretending who we aren't. Pretending we're better than we are. And it doesn't look like some sort of fake authenticity, like sinning boldly so that somehow the outside matches the inside. How we really feel. In the book of Zechariah, chapters 3, verses 1 through 10, our hope is this. God gives us the acceptance that we crave through Jesus' life and death, which were both perfect 
And if we believe in Jesus and not in ourselves, God's acceptance of us will overflow in an inside-out way into true authenticity and even true piety. Look, I'm going to say that in much, a lot fewer words. Here, here it is in a nutshell. God gives us the acceptance we crave through Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus, our acceptance overflows into real relationships. Okay? So our, God gives us the acceptance we crave through Jesus, and our acceptance by God overflows into real relationships. That's what I think this passage is all about, and that's the hope that it's picturing. It's picturing this hope in three parts. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see the acceptance that we crave. Then in verses 5, and also verses 4 through 5, and also 8 through 10, we see the acceptance that God gives. And finally, in verses 6 through 7, we see the overflow of God's acceptance into our lives. Okay, so again, first, verses 1 through 3, the acceptance we crave. Verses 4 through 5, and then six through, or 8 through 10, the acceptance that God gives. And finally, verses 6 through 7, we see the overflow of acceptance. Okay? So acceptance we crave, acceptance God gives, overflow of acceptance. That's what we're going to look at. Um, and you'll notice that we're going to tackle these three parts of Zechariah's beautiful vision of hope. We're going to do it outside in. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 at the beginning. And we're going to look at the end, verses 8 through 10, to get to the middle, verses 6 through 7. Okay, that's how we're going to move through this. So, um, why don't you, if you look at verses 3, 1 through 3 with me at the beginning, and picture, and look at the picture there of the acceptance that we crave. Look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1, we're told the acceptance happens, the acceptance that we want happens in a heavenly courtroom. The prophet Zechariah is having a night vision. A night vision is something like a divinely guided dream. Okay? And in this vision, God is showing Zechariah the Lord's spiritual courtroom. That place where every single person, no matter what we believe, will show up at the end of our lives or the end of time. That day, according to verse 10. So there we are in that courtroom. There are three main players. A judge, the angel of the Lord. A prosecutor, Satan. And the accused, Joshua, the high priest. The high priest of Israel at the time of Zechariah. Okay? Those are our three things. And remember, symbolically and actually, because this is a true vision, the angel of the Lord stands in for and speaks for God. Okay? So you can think of the, angel, of the judge as God. Okay? And, symbolically, Satan is another word for de- the devil. Satan, by the way, is just the Hebrew, the accuser. Okay? That's what it means, Satan. Okay? And then finally, Joshua the high priest is a stand-in, a double, for each and every one of us. So the judge is God, the prosecutor is the devil, and the defendant is you and me. That's what's going on in this scene. And verse 1 describes Satan, the devil, accusing each and every one of us of everything that we've ever done that we still blush about, all that we close the door and, clo- and, and lock the door and close the blinds over, everything that we're so desperately afraid that everyone else will find out about us. He's listing it off to God. But maybe it's hard for you to believe 
in a spiritual figure like Satan. After all, said, we have such a thing as space exploration, smartphones, the internet. Okay, we know better than this. But let me tell you this, okay? I'm going to grant you that Satan probably does not have goat legs and horns and a serpent's tail. Okay? And I'm also going to definitely convince, I'm definitely convinced that South Park maybe has it wrong and he doesn't sleep with Saddam Hussein. Not his love partner in eternal fire. Okay? But I think that the proof for Satan of this reality, not just of Satan, but of the heavenly spiritual courtroom, is actually in our everyday lives, in our desperate need for acceptance. I'm gonna, by the way, I'm just going to put this caveat. I'm borrowing a lot from a sermon by Tim Keller. It is awesome. You should go listen to it. Uh, it was in 1990 before many of you were born, but it's great. Okay? Um, anyway, so that's my caveat. We can talk about it later. Okay, so look, individually, each one of us is secretly worried that we're not making the grade. We're secretly worried that we're guilty. We see this concern in our deep-seated feelings. The things that I was talking about earlier. The feelings of inadequacy. The feelings of lack of acceptance. The feeling of hypocrisy. The feeling of disqualification. And the fear we have of other people. What if they really know us? Are they going to run away? Many of us are imperfect perfectionists. And most of us, if not all of us, feel like imposters in life. Okay? Let's be honest for a second. We can't live up to the hype when things go well, and we can't live down the criticism when things go poorly. We're not who we say we are most of the time. Our expectations for others, we can't live up to. Okay? We don't really know what we're doing. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. We all feel like fakes. We're afraid that our bosses and our professors and our friends will find out the truth and call us out and we'll be exposed as unlovely losers who are not worth the time and the effort to get to know. Deep down inside, that bothers us. Look, and I can prove this. Just think about your nightmares for just a minute. I'm going to share some of mine, okay? Which my freshmen already know. Uh, Look, here's what I have a dream about over and over again. I'm naked. And I'm in a crowd of people. Maybe sometimes speaking, sometimes at a party. And I can't get to my underwear. Okay? Or there I am back in high school, and I didn't graduate. And I failed this test that I needed to pass to graduate. And all of a sudden, there I am, like 32 years old, back with 16-year-olds, cramming for a test that I can't find time to study for. Or, I'm still in high school, but I forgot to take an exam that led to my graduation, so they take my diploma from me. 32 years old without a GED. Okay? That's, those are my nightmares. Welcome to me. Okay? I'm sorry you had to be on the couch for that one. Okay, so, look... We all have dreams like this, and there is a voice inside of our dreams and inside of our heads that is the voice of Satan, and his accusations are booming down from the heavenly courtroom. And they are rattling inside of what we call our consciences. Okay? Again, some of these accusations are absolutely true, 
we really did do that. We really do think that about that other person. But some of the accusations that we hear are false. There is this shame that some of us have because we are physically abused or date raped or picked on a lot as a kid or maybe just overlooked and ignored. That's a false accusation. That is not our fault. That is not your fault. But putting aside false accusations for a minute, just look at the true accusations against us about what we really did think and feel and do. Are we going to be like that little boy in the YouTube video that's got like sprinkles all over his face and, and icing, and his mom's asking him, did you steal the cookies? And he's saying, no. Are we really going to live that reality? <laughs> Look, verse 3 tells us we're caught red-handed in God's courtroom. We're clothed in filthy garments. That is, we are covered in the Hebrew with poop and pee and vomit. The poop and pee and vomit of our sins. It is wretched and it smells terrible. But don't you, don't I long for a wardrobe change here? I love the words of a pastor, John Tyndale. He says, we want a divine dress reversal. A divine dress reversal. Don't we want clean clothes like are offered in verses 4 and 5? Certainly, if you don't personally want it, your culture does. All you have to do, all you have to do is listen to the stories that we tell ourselves and tell our little kids and tell ourselves over and over and over again. Or you just have to sit in a Starbucks for more than an hour and you'll hear the same songs over and over and over again about the same things. What are they? Every woman wants to Cinderella transformation, where she goes from a poor, mousy-looking, minimum-wage earner to a rich, beautiful princess. Every, per- every guy in this room wants an Aladdin moment where he goes from a poor, unimportant, unemployed man-child <laughs> to a rich, successful prince. Okay, So we all want a Cinderella transformation or a Aladdin moment. And in the words of the singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman in her song Fast Car, we just wish we belonged. We just want to be somebody, to be someone. Thank you, Starbucks. Clearly, clearly fairy godmothers and magic genie lamps don't exist. Okay? But the historical Jesus did exist and does exist. And God, through Jesus, gives us this divine dress reversal. The very acceptance that we crave. And this is the second point of our time together. The acceptance that God gives in verses 4 and 5 and 8 through 10. In verses 4 and 5, God, the judge, becomes the defense attorney. Do you realize how amazing that is? He becomes the defense attorney, and he orders justice to be served for Joshua and for anyone who believes in Jesus. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. Then he turns to Joshua. He turns to each and every one of us in this room right here, right now. He says, behold, I have taken away your iniquity. Your evil is gone. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, clean clothing, goodness forevermore. How is this just? How can a good and 
impartial judge call us innocent when we all know we're guilty? Look at verses 8 through 10. There we see how. God made his eternal son an earthly servant. The servant Jesus is the branch. The branch is a prophetic way of talking about a descendant of King David. In this case, the son of Joseph, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we couldn't and wouldn't live. And that's actually that's symbol, symbolically portrayed by that stone that's covered with seven eyes or seven facets. Seven in the Bible is a perfect number. So think about Jesus covered in perfection. And not only did Jesus live the perfect life, he died the perfect death. And this death is symbolized by Zechariah by the words engraved inscription. An engraved inscription, the inscription are the scars on Jesus' body that he still carries and will forever carry in the Godhead, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. Where? How did he get those scars in his body? He got them from the crucifixion. He was inscribed for all time by the wounds of one thorny crown, three nails, and a spear. That's the inscription written on that stone. But so what? Jesus lived and died a perfect life? Great. What does that have to do with me? This is where our great high priest comes in. It's not a coincidence that Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus, which is the Greek version of Joshua. Okay? So, in the Hebrew, people called Jesus Joshua. Okay? What Zechariah is implying in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, our reading earlier, is definitely stating clearly, is that Jesus, as a great high priest, took our place in that heavenly courtroom. What does that mean? The judge of the universe was judged for us. And for our sins. On the cross, Jesus took on the filthy garments of sin and he gave us the pure garments of righteousness. In a divine sacrifice of substitution, Jesus gives us the innocent verdict that he deserves. And then he takes the guilty verdict that we deserve for all time, if we believe that he did this. Look, you've heard that maybe, but let me tell you what it means. Here's what that means. Every time that you feel accusation humming in your head, spinning in your dreams, churning in your hearts, every time you feel accusation from Satan above, know that Jesus is pleading your case. He's defending you at the right hand of the Father. Just imagine the scene. Every time that, Jesus, that Satan points out pornography and pride and laziness and selfishness, every single moment, every single time that accusation is lodged against you, Jesus points to the wounds on his hands and his feet and in his side and around, across his brow. And he says, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. I paid for that. I died for that sinner. You cannot justly condemn him or her anymore. It's done. That's happening all the time. That's what the passage in Hebrews 7 is talking about with 
intercession. That's what he's doing. He's showing his wounds and he's saying, it's done. It's over. You're forgiven. Look, in other words, in Jesus, we are accepted for all time by the most perfect person in all of existence. I mean, I don't know how I can say this anymore. We cannot be guilty, Romans 8.1. Every single accusation that's ever been made against us and ever will be made of us has been nailed to the cross of Christ Jesus, Colossians 2.14. Look, all of our sins have been crucified with Christ. They are dead to us, and they are dead to God, Galatians 2.20. So the next time you and I feel disqualified by life, the next time that voice inside of us accuses us, here's what you tell them. Here's what you tell the voice. Is that it? Is that all you got? Is that it? I'm far worse than that. But I am far more loved. Far more desirable. Far more accepted than you can even put a dent in by any measly accusation that you put against me. Jesus has paid for me. It is done. It is finished. But look, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would the Lord of the universe do this? Why would he love us like this? Why did he live and die to declare that those who are believed are innocent and acceptable? Why is he doing that? Why did he do that? Look, I know this is out of order and it'll bother some of you. But look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives us a hint. In this, in this section, the Lord rebukes Satan. He tells him to back off from his people. Why? Because he's chosen us. He's chosen us. And th- what is he trying to say there? Why would God choose a burning stick? Why would God choose a filthy, charred, dirty stick? Clearly it's not because of anything that we bring to the table. It's not because we look good. It's not because we're skillful. It's not because we're being given mad gifts. It's not because we have great job prospects. We're spiritual firewood. It's because of God's grace. It's because of God's undeserved, unbelievable love for his people. Look, if Zechariah's courtroom vision and our consciences tell us anything, they tell us that we cannot earn God's acceptance. They tell us that we don't want to earn God's acceptance. And this is why the commands for obedience in verse 7, for instance, come after, not before, the God's acceptance in verses 1 through 4. Do you get that? There's an order to this on purpose. God doesn't offer us conditional love. He doesn't sit there and say, hey, Sid, if you obey really well, maybe then I'll accept you. No, he does. He gives me unconditional. He gives anyone who believes unconditional love, which says this, I accept you, period. Therefore, obey. It's not obey to get accepted. It's exception. Acceptance leads to obedience. If you, if you trust that, that will change your life. It will change mine. Look, meditating on this uh, undeserved, unconditional love of God for her, the singer-songwriter J.J. Heller writes this really beautiful song called Love Me. Okay? 
Let me just give you the chorus. It's in the chorus, God is singing over her, and, she's, and he's singing over us, and he's saying this. I love you for you. Not for what you've done. Not for what you'll become. I love you for you. Don't you, don't I, really want to be finally and fully loved for who we are and not what we do? I don't know about you, but I want the rest pictured in verse 10. Desperately. I want, I want the kind of love that's behind why I love to hold happy babies. I want the kind of love that's why we buy loyal dogs. I want the kind of love that thinks that boyfriends and girlfriends will change everything because finally someone will know us and not run away. We want unconditional love. A love that doesn't make us perform. A love that doesn't judgmental and demanding. A lover that we can be ourselves around. And only God can give us this kind of love. Because only God loves people not because they're lovely. But he makes them lovely by loving them. Okay? It's not like God goes, hey, I want that one in the crowd. He or she is fetching. Okay? He or she is worthy. what transforms. His love is the fairy godmother. His love is the genie in the lamp. His love is what makes us feel like we finally are someone. And I would end real briefly by explaining and exploring just how God's love makes us lovely. What does this look like? I think it's a beautiful explanation in verses 6 and 7. Notice that God's unconditional acceptance is not the end of the story. Instead, his love serves his love serves as an equipping for us to love him and to love each other. I love that. And let me just put it in a beautiful quotation. It's it's not the end of the story. It's actually what equips us, furnishes us, fuels us to go and love radically. Okay? I love the way that a pastor named Scotty Smith puts this in a prayer. He says, grace doesn't free us to love poorly. It frees us to love generously. Grace is not a green card for self-indulgence. It's our only hope for serving one another in love. I love that last line. It's worth repeating. Grace is our only hope for serving one another in love. Without grace, we're screwed. But what does it look like to serve one another in love? Verses 6 and 7 suggest that it actually looks like, very counterintuitive, behaving like a priest of God. Think about 1 Peter 2. There we're told that God's people, his chosen people, are a priesthood, a priesthood of all believers that are supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our life's purpose, in other words, our greatest joy that we could possibly have is to live out of this gracious gracious truth. Jesus has taken our dark filth and he has replaced it 
on the cross with a marvelous purity. If we believe this, if we really believed that we were finally and fully accepted, do you realize that it would change everything about us? It would change the way that we worship, and it would change the way that we relate. Let me just give you a taste, and I just don't have time. I wish we had more time. Okay? We would come to God in worship unafraid and unashamed. Not only with our praise, but with our sin. If we believed that this was true, that we were finally and fully accepted, we would go to other people with a kind of reckless self-forgetfulness. The kind of self-forgetfulness, the kind of love that does not compete for affection. Does not keep a tally mark about who did the dishes last. Instead, we would love someone, and we'd love someone so recklessly that we wouldn't mind making mistakes. Because it's paid for. Forever. Look, I guess what I'm trying, trying to say about this, the whole sermon, the whole passage, what I think it's all about is, what would it have looked like for my friend's dad to confess that he was an alcoholic? What would it have looked like for my friend's dad, a pastor, to trust that God loved him even when he got drunk in the kitchen pantry? I honestly think it would have saved his life. Do you get how powerful that is? Here's my question. What about me? What would it look like? What, what would it look like if I believed, as I believe, as I hope to believe, that God loves me for me, and not how this sermon's going? What would that look like? I think it would save my marriage. It would save my family. It would save my ministry. And not that those things are shipwrecked, but I need grace. And what about you? What would it look like, what is it like for you all to believe in this final and full acceptance by Jesus Christ? How would it change you? What would it be like for you to be loved for you and not for the friends you have, or the grades you have, or the job you have lined up? I think it would save you and your friends from hating each other and from hating Jesus. Again, maybe that's not what's going on. I'm just saying grace has to happen. And finally, here's my question for RUF. What would it look like for each and every one of us to deal with each other with grace and not conditions? What would it look like for us to radically love like that? I think it just might save the idea of Christian community. It might just point to a Savior that likes to rescue his church. Look, in Jesus Christ, God loves us for us. He accepts us for Christ's sake. This is the gospel. This is atonement. And frankly, people, frankly, Sid, this is the only hope that any of us have. Period. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that this wouldn't turn into somebody thinking they don't have enough faith. <laughs> I pray that this would turn into us 
looking at the heavenly throne room and saying, I can't believe, help my unbelief, that you, Jesus, would jump out behind the gavel and wrap us in your rope of righteousness. I pray that we could just not get over this passage, not my sermon, not what I've said, not my angry, fanatical, whatever tone, but that we couldn't get over Zechariah 3. We couldn't get over that there's a swap that happened, that we went from filthy to clean. We couldn't get over that that means everything. That's everything we want. Everything we need. And we've been given it already. But Jesus, I pray, Father, that you just wouldn't let us leave without wrestling that truth into our hearts. Without smuggling that vision into our lives. Without helping us to trace who you are, even when we don't understand what you do. We ask for this mercy, this kindness, this grace. In your son Jesus' name. Amen.